High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, teenage detectives, femme fatales, drug kingpins, and any other film noir character trope you'd like to insert here. This is High School Slumber Party, the podcast where me and some friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and the party's at my place this evening, but first, school your sophomore year of school, is still in session. So let's chat about your homework assignments. This was your assignment, and I would like to see the results. So our Women in Horror series is finally over. I don't mean finally, like, ugh, it's finally over. But I'm glad not to be watching horror films for a little bit. I need a little break. (laughs) However, I thought it was an awesome series. Big thank you to all my guests. All the episodes are up on where you're listening right now, whether it be Stitcher, whether that be Google Play, whether that be Apple Podcasts, whether that be Spotify. I always forget one. (laughs) And while you're there, please, can you give us a five-star rating? Can you leave us a nifty, awesome review? And, you know, as always, as always, share your love for High School Slumber Party on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You guys have been commenting. I love it. I love reading it. I read everything. Don't worry. Also, you could always email me at highschoolslumberparty at gmail.com. That's highschoolslumberparty at gmail.com. And while we're getting all this out of the way, might as well tell you that you can always find us on cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me, as we are a proud part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. And a lot of those Cage Club Podcast Network hosts were guests on my Women in Horror series. And again, seriously, listen back, let me know what you think. I love the feedback. But today, we don't have a horror film. We do have a serious film. A cool film, a film a lot of you guys were clamoring for me to cover, and I'm happy to be able to do it. And we have a first-time guest as well. The film is Brick, directed by Ryan Johnson, and that's the Ryan Johnson of Star Wars The Last Jedi. And he's got a new film coming out called Knives Out. There are a lot of big Ryan Johnson fans. Maybe he's polarizing to some. I don't know. But we have someone... A great guest to talk about it. His name is Matt Delhauer, and it's his first time here, as I mentioned. And I think you're going to like him, and I hope he comes back to the slumber party. So, uh, your homework, of course, then, was to watch Brick, which is an easy film to stream anywhere. I don't need to help you with that. 
Whoa, whoa, whoa! What do I always tell ya? The bell doesn't dismiss you, I dismiss you. We have a lot more to talk about. So as you know on this podcast, I occasionally like to give you reviews of stuff that maybe you haven't seen before, stuff that's coming out, stuff that maybe slips under the radar. And luckily I had the opportunity recently to review a movie called The Boonies. Yes, it rhymes with The Goonies, and that's on purpose. It's a small film, but with some recognizable names. And if you're just into, like, high school fun, this film is for you. It's described as, like, a mystery comedy, and I definitely get it. It has uh, interesting style elements. Kind of reminded me of The Warriors, too, believe it or not. But it's a, a great ensemble film about, like, a group of kids who are trying to find some money that they thought they turned into the police when they were kids in, like, a Goonies-like gang that they had. But actually, or so they think, I don't want to spoil it for you, is somewhere in the school because a recently deceased, we'll say, friend of theirs is communicating to them, you know, possibly from the dead, and he's giving them clues. And it's fun because, like, the characters are really archetypy, but if you listen to this show, you know I don't mind that. And I'm looking for more movies like this. There's so many, like, horror films that are kind of in this vein that, while this isn't a horror film, because, again, I've watched a lot of those in October, this is like a mystery adventure film. It's like a, a fun high school Scooby-Doo. I think you're going to enjoy it. And, um, yeah, some familiar faces in this. Uh, the two people I recognize were... Andy Matichak, she's from the new Halloween series, and I've seen her other places, I can't remember where. And the other person that I saw that I recognized was Calum Worthy, is his name. And I'm pretty sure he's in American Vandal, I'm going to check that out right now. Yes, he is. And honestly, a really fun film. It's available to stream November 11th, ooh, Veterans Day, I think that's Monday, um, on Amazon, Hoopla, Fandango... Uh, Just search it, and I think you'll get a kick out of it, especially, again, if you're a fan of this podcast. Um, I love ensemble things. I love mysteries. And like I said, I love the the characters, the people who actually make up the boonies. They're, uh, They're all very different, and they're all very, like I said, like high school archetypes, and some, some, uh, really, really funny ones, and the dialogue between themselves is really, really great, and I think the film knows what it is. It knows that they're making stereotypes of these people, because it alludes to it a lot, and again, I think you're going to get a kick out of it. It's called The Boonies. Check it out, and let me know what you think on our social media. Class participation is very important, and of course, I hope you let me know what you think of today's episode on Brick, as well as the film Brick on social media, but we went over that already. You guys know your homework. I think you're ready to go. I think you're ready to get this Friday percolating. I think you're ready to, I don't know, start the beautiful, beautiful fall, at least where I live, fall weekend. So you know what that means. Pack your favorite jammies. Tell your mother you're sleeping for Brian's. Because we're going to get our party on. So I leave you with something beautiful from the soundtrack to Brick. It's a really good soundtrack, a really like modern, noir soundtrack. It's called Emily's Theme. Class dismissed.
welcome to the slumber party. It's your first time here. I love having first-time guests. Not sure if you've heard the show before, but if you haven't, we always introduce ourselves the same way here on High School Slumber Party. We say our name, our high school, our graduating class optional because we don't want to be ageist, <laughs> and our high school team name. I am Matt Delhauer. I went to Vernon Township High School, class of 2007, and we were the Vernon Vikings. Oh, cool. The alliteration's so common in <laughs> high schools. Oh, yeah. Well, Matt, since it's your first time here, I ask my first-time guest this question. What were you like in high school? What was your high school experience like? Um, I was a bit of a band geek. I was in a uh, marching band all four years. Nice. But... I was in drumline, so we were like the kings of the marching band kind of a thing, you know? We were just at that right age where the Nick Cannon movie had come out. Oh, man. So being in drumline was the coolest thing possible. <laughs> but we were also all white, so it was not exactly that cool. <laughs> Honestly, I kind of floated amongst a lot of the, the cliques. I never really settled into one. I was able to be uh, friends with just about anybody around. And I was I was lucky enough that I never fell into that trope where, like, I was in band, but I, I was also, you know, hanging out with kids who were on the football team or who were in the heavy metal bands or, you know, were out there, you know, skateboarding after school and getting yelled at. So, like, <laughs> I kind of was I was able to kind of, like, transcend high school cliques, but at the same time... I don't know if that's a good thing, because it also felt like I never really fit in with anybody, you know? Sounds like you'd be a good main character, though, for a high school film, because I, I feel like a lot of films I've seen, that's like the exact profile of, of our protagonist. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. And also, the band thing, I don't know what it is. I mean, I can venture some guesses, but I don't know what it is. But I would say band is the most common activity of all the guests I've had on this podcast, so... I think it's probably because everybody at some point in, like, their grade school education is brought into learning an instrument. Like, I know in third grade, I think it was, like, we had the option to learn an instrument, mm -hmm. and we were forced to essentially be part of the band if we did. I tried to learn saxophone for a little while, but I was also... I grew up as a kid who never really got pushed to try anything like I would try a bunch of stuff and if I didn't really like it like I was never forced to stick with anything I guess that's uh, good. so it kind of is but it also leads to me being an adult who feels like he has no direction so <laughs> <laughs> um ultimately it boils down to I didn't really do band until about seventh and eighth grade when drums and percussion was a thing you could do Gotcha. And then once once that hit and I was able to be a part of that, I, I found at least something that I was able to stick with because I'd already been doing it on my own for a while. So I didn't need to feel that pressure of like, you have to be able to do this for the other band members. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, maybe this is the outside looking in, but the drum, any kind of percussions always seems like the bad boys of a band. I mean, we at least try to be because, you know, we're... <laughs> We're, we're supposed to be those kids with the emotional uh, disorders who like to hit stuff instead of talk, <laughs> you know? But, I mean, ultimately, as far as I knew, anybody that I knew that was in either percussion or was in drumline and stuff, like, we were all just nerds, man. Like, we, we all loved our anime and our comic books and stuff, and this was just the thing that we didn't have to learn how to read notes for. Hmm, that's interesting. I feel like, I don't know if it's true, but maybe Ryan Johnson was in the band, too, because... This film. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this film's, I mean, I'm not surprised. Again, we're, today we're talking about Brick, 
and um, I'll ask you, well, I'll just ask you now, why Brick of all the movies you could choose? Going into college, uh, especially the fact that I wanted to be involved in filmmaking, which is how I met uh, Joey, one half of the Lord and Saviors of the Cage Club Podcast Network. Yes, the Godfather himself. <laughs> you know, when you we started talking, I was like, let me check if anyone knows, you know, who you are, and... I only heard good things about you. Well, I appreciate that. I'm sure they were all lies. <laughs> but going into in, into wanting to do film in college, one of the things that kind of caught my eye was I loved film noir. Like mm. the the style of both the writing and the filmmaking for film noir was a thing that just enraptured me. So as I was about to head into college, uh, a really good friend of mine um, from high school had shown me the movie Brick. And he had been like, hey, man, you got to check this out. It's like a it's like a classic detective movie that takes place in high school. And my first thought was, that sounds like the stupidest thing I've ever heard of in my life. <laughs> and then as we watched the movie, like I was blown away and just the the very minimalist direction. But like the fact that there is still this like religious ideology of the Churiskawa build of noir in this movie, as well as just. The performance of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who I only ever knew as, you know, that kid from Third Rock from the Sun. <laughs> so it was just like, it was all of these various things that, like, in my mind was like, this can't possibly work. Not with this actor, not in this setting. And it was like this very weirdly perfect thing to me. And I have I have sung its praises for, God, 13 years now. So... This is the first time I really watched this film, like, front to back, really paying attention. It was something that people had put on at parties, and I wasn't paying attention too much. I will tell you now, anybody who tried to have you watch this at a party doesn't understand how to watch this movie. <laughs> no, no, and, and I definitely agree with that. It seemed like all the cool film people I was hanging out with in college, and even after college, were singing the praises of this film, and, you know, singing the praises of Ryan Johnson... Some of those have left the praises of Ryan Johnson. I'll let you know now. But I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry for them that they have terrible opinions. <laughs> um, honestly, well, hopefully Knives Out will win them back. <laughs> Hope so. But this is a film that like, I was really excited once I started this podcast to do and talk about. But I made a promise to myself like, not to watch any high school films from the moment I started this podcast till I do them in the episode, just to mm -hmm. not spoil it. And, um, you know, I, I'm sure towards the end we'll both say how we feel about this film, but obviously mm -hmm. we both really, really like it. So, <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert there. And I was so, I don't want to say surprised, but I was so happy watching it this time because I am petrified on this show that movies that either people said were good or people I enjoyed from the year 2005 or to 2009 or 10 that when I watch them today I'm going to be like oh it's it is a reason as to why when I tried to think of movies from when I was in high school like I was so worried because I was like oh my god all of those movies are so problematic now like Literally, the new guy starts with a dude getting his penis broken by a grown woman and then changing schools. Like, I remember when I watched that movie when I was, like, 14, I was like, I don't ever want to see this movie again. And you can check and, like, out that episode in the archives, guys. Continue. <laughs> but, like, it's like, as I was trying to think back of, like, all right, high school movies, I'm like, I never really grew up on, like, the John Hughes movies. Like, that was way before my time. It didn't affect me in any way. 
I tried to think of ones in the 90s. I was like, I don't really remember high school movies of the 90s. Like, there was maybe Scream, another one that I know you've done recently. Mm-hmm. And it was like, away from that, it was like a couple of slasher movies. And I don't know if you consider Empire Records to be a high school movie. I'm pretty sure they're all college age. Yeah, that's never been determined really so we're, we're not so we're, it's a gray area right now yeah that, that'll that'll be like the lost episode <laughs> but i was like okay so so that means i have to go to a time when i was in high school and i was like man a lot of those movies are either not good ones i didn't care for or ones i don't care to go back and watch so ultimately i will admit what i did was i typed into google high school movies mm-hmm. And, like, in the first five of them, it said Brick, and I went, oh, my God, that is a high school movie. I was like, I mean, it doesn't fit the quote-unquote high school movie, you know, No, but, you know, we, mold. We, it definitely fits it more than some other films we've done on this podcast. I'm just letting I you mean, know. I mean, it takes place in a high school, so I guess that, yeah, technically it, it fits the concept for the podcast, but, like, if you asked, like, what's your favorite high school movie? <laughs> Like, no one's going to say that weird, you know, detective noir where that girl gets murdered. It's kind of like saying Die Hard's your favorite Christmas movie, that old thing. Exactly. Which, technically, it is for me. (laughs) But yeah, when you say Christmas film, you don't immediately think, uh, Bruce Willis half-naked in a tower. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're right. (laughs) You're absolutely right. And I think you're right, too, in a sense that, like, the whole noir beats could be, you know, transponded on anything, really. Not anything, but... It was so awesome seeing it in this world, and I think this movie holds up. Sure, I'm sure there's a problematic line here or there, but that aside, you know, I was super, super impressed. So every I, week, I read the uh, back of the DVD for those of us mm-hmm. who didn't see it and didn't do their homework, which would be very silly, because this one's on Netflix, guys, if you haven't seen it. Um, and it's it's also, this is one of those ones where, like, I've, I've said to anybody, like, don't listen to me talk about it. Watch this movie before you hear me talk about it, because I don't want to explain to you why you should love this movie. I want someone to be able to experience this movie for either good or bad and either share in the praise of it or let me try to change your mind in some spots. Mm. But I don't I don't want to have to explain the whole plot to somebody because I feel like you're never going to get the experience that, that comes from watching this. No, so what I'm about to read is probably useless, but... It's tradition here. <laughs> so here goes. Brendan Fry is a loner in high school, someone who knows all the angles but has chosen to stay on the outside. When the girl he loves, Emily, turns up dead, he's determined to find the who and the why. Enlisting the aid of his old true friend, the brain, Brendan plunges headlong into the dark and dangerous social strata of rich girl Laura, intimidating Tug, and mysterious Pin. It is only by gaining the acceptance into the pin's closely guarded inner circle of crime and punishment that Brendan can uncover hard truths about himself, Emily, and the suspects he's getting closer to. And then it just goes into, like, the actors and stuff. But, uh, Mm -hmm. so I always mention this because it's, a lot of times, this is written by someone who hasn't seen the film. But I guess this one didn't reveal too much. And more towards your point, this is more a movie you watch than read about and then be like, hey... I want to see this. Like, I I talk about on the show a lot, like, being younger and going to Blockbuster and renting films based on their cover or based on the back of of the DVD or the VHS. And I don't know if this one, you know, maybe it would intrigue me, maybe it wouldn't, I'm not sure, but this is definitely a movie that, like I said, I think spread a lot through word of mouth, and then pretty much everyone I know who saw it loved it. Yeah. This was a movie where I remember... 
I remember going to the movies with my family at one point in like 2004 or whatever, and I saw a trailer for this movie. Now, this was around the time that um, I had known a couple of like family friends who were older. They were like around my brother's age, my mm-hmm. older brother. So like eight or so years older than me, just about the time that they would have been out of college and were interested in trying to get into film. And it was one of those ones where, like, I saw the trailer, and by the end, I was like, oh, man, I feel like that's the kind of, like, pretentious garbage they would be into. (laughs) And then it was four years later, you know, I'm now 17 years old, this movie gets presented to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing about this once, maybe, and then finally seeing it and being like, wow, okay, this is far better than anybody trying to explain it or even a trailer, like, was able to explain to me. It's one of those movies that I feel like is very much hindered by trying to truncate the concept of. And it's because of the sheer fact that this is a movie that is ultimately taking a time-tested concept of a filmmaking and trying to put a new spin on it. And for that fact, it's like, okay, it's it's a, a Humphrey Bogart detective movie that takes place in high school. Again, somebody <laughs> says that, and you're like, that sounds fucking stupid. <laughs> oh, really wait, does. are we allowed to curse on here? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, cool. That <laughs> sounds fucking stupid. <laughs> but it's like, it is one of those things where I, I accept the idea that maybe being a film person makes this more of an interesting movie. Like, I remember trying to show this to a girlfriend years ago, and, like, she just was not interested at all. And I was like, that sucks because, you know, we're probably going to break up. But also, (laughs) it made me realize, like, oh, like, there's a certain thing about me and the things I like that leads to me enjoying this movie. And I I don't like to believe it's a movie that, like, you have to be a film person or you have to be into, you know, the noir detective genre to enjoy. I feel like it's a movie that you could absolutely love just for what it is, but I feel like there are maybe a couple of things you have to understand beforehand before you get into it. Care to elaborate on what you think those things are? Um, I think one of the things you have to be able to get into is there is a style of language, there is dialogue in this that is very heavily influenced by that 1930s, 1940s hard-boiled detective fiction like the fact that they refer to the cops in this movie as the bulls Mm -hmm. that's a thing no one has said since 1939 (laughs) it's true (laughs) so it's it's a thing where you kind of you have to do maybe a little bit of homework before you go diving into this because it feels like the way my brother described it to me because i know he does not actually he doesn't he didn't enjoy this movie when he tried to watch it wow he said I can't get into it because it feels like little kids pretending they're adults. Mm. And for that, I was like, I get where you're coming from, but I also feel like you're really trying to find a problem. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting take because I, exactly, I know what your brother's trying to say. I didn't, it didn't strike me as that, but I also, you know, I kind of, I don't know, got it from the beginning in terms of the language and the style that... This is a pretty stylized film. Um, I wasn't expecting the usual high school tropes, you know, um, which is nice to see and refreshing. Huh, that is an interesting interesting take, though. Yeah, I think the, the interesting bit of it and the, the, I would say, the scene that I would show somebody to give them an idea as to what this movie is and how they can approach it 
is there's the scene where Brendan is brought into the principal's office or the the assistant vice principal's office. I apologize. Yeah. And it's it's that moment that you see in a lot of the detective movies where the private investigator is being like uh, reamed out by the cops because they're they're overstepping their bounds or whatever it is. And it's it's this interesting way of being able to look at high school as being its own microcosm of life. Hmm. And when he brings him in and he's essentially giving this little bit of backstory about having helped them with, quote unquote, taking down Jer, which is a, a whole, you know, another story that gets tied into later about him essentially working with the vice principal's office to snitch on a kid who was dealing drugs in school. But it's it's the dialogue and the way that it, it goes between the two of them where he's he's kind of being standoffish but he's also willingly working with them and it's it's this idea of like essentially the, the quid pro quo of like I need you to not be giving me crap about missing class because in order to to possibly hand you the biggest you know drug ring of the high schoolers that we know of I need to be able to be out of class and working angles and it's it's this whole idea of the the authority figures are 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 changed from police to the uh, faculty of a high school. The private investigator is no longer you know a washed up veteran. He's a a, a cynical loner in high school mm-hmm. who doesn't like the various cliques of people. And it's it's just this way that he's able to essentially play on the idea that everyone has always seen high school as being a microcosm of the real world and just kind of translating one for one this sort of film into a different genre without honestly changing anything other than the titles. Yeah, what this movie does, it does it like intelligently. It's not just like, you know, uh, this is from a movie and I can't remember, but casting Death of a Salesman with teenagers or something and just reading the same lines. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's not it's not Boz Lerman's Romeo. And yes, Julia. that's a great ex- best example. You know, it, it's not at all, and it just makes sense. And maybe it makes more sense to me because I pretty much have immersed myself in uh, this world of high school films, and, and you know, I- just being someone who grew up in an American high school. I, I know how things just more or less work. And I think I think the interesting fact is is that, you know, when you look back at your years in high school, you recognize that they really weren't all that important. But when you were in high school, it was the most important thing in your life. Oh, this yeah. was your world. And so to take a story that is steeped in such heavy concepts as drug addiction, murder, you know, taking these these forms of authority and just kind of transferring them between settings. So, of course, you know, as mentioned, Ryan Johnson, this is his baby. I guess this is what put him on the map. Apparently, you know, he wrote this back in 1997. Um, but as I'm sure you and everyone else knows, it takes a long time to make a movie, especially if you're not too known. And I read he was inspired, obviously, by noirs and spaghetti westerns, but also... Cowboy Bebop. I don't know if you're familiar with Cowboy Bebop. Uh, I absolutely am. And the funny thing is, is when you say it, I go, really? And then immediately go, oh, yeah, I see it. <laughs> um, I'm, You know, I'm not a hardcore Cowboy Bebop person, but I know it enough to kind of understand exactly, you know, what that means here. Mm-hmm. And the other just quick Ryan Johnson note I had is that it was shot in his hometown using his hometown high school, uh, San Clemente High School in California, which I thought was, you know, 
always cool to see because I think when I was trying to write films in like high school, I was you know picturing them in my own high school, you know. So oh um, yeah, again going on the concept of when you're in high school, it's it's the whole world to you. Uh-huh. To set a film in high school when you're in high school, the only high school you know is your own. Yeah, and um, it reminded me too. I know you said you weren't too much of a fan of the John Hughes thing, but John Hughes and Amy Heckerling pretty much pioneered that whole thing of, and I guess Cameron Crowe just for writing the films too, but uh, the whole thing of the things in high school, while they don't matter to the adult world, really are your whole world in high school and really matter. And this thing kind of bridges both because these are real world problems. Oh, yeah. Uh, not many high schools have to deal with the issue of some girl got murdered. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's for sure. And you mentioned also Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Before we really dive into the film, I want to talk about the cast a little bit. Now, being a high school film scholar, if you will, I uh, really, at least at the time, remember Joseph Gordon-Levitt mostly for 10 Things I Hate About You, mm-hmm. which feels like worlds away from this film in terms of years he definitely wasn't in high school when he shot uh, Brick. That didn't take me out of the film, you know? But that Joseph Gordon-Levitt doesn't seem like this Joseph Gordon-Levitt. No, I understand exactly what you mean. Um, and it's it's one of those things where I feel like, you know, it was around the time after 10 Things I Hate About You and such was when he decided he was going to just kind of take a break from acting and he mm-hmm. wanted to go to school. He wanted to go to college. Brick was the first movie he did after that. So he's mm-hmm. like 24, when they make this. Which isn't um, terrible. We've seen a lot not. worse. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not. He's not, you know, he's not Freddie Prinze Jr. trying to pretend he's 17. <laughs> it's, it's still one of those things where I think for the character that they created as well, him being older really played into it because he's built to essentially be like an old soul in this teenage character. Yeah, no, 100%. And like, again, in a film of somewhat, I don't know, kind of an old soul type of film. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, th- that that concept of doing 1940s filmmaking in a in an early 2000s high school movie, no one's going to feel like a teenager. But I, I, I think that's what I like about it is as a teenager, you don't feel like a teenager. You f- you think you're an adult. You act mm-hmm. and behave as if you think you're an adult. And to see these kids playing out as adults in a world where, yeah, they've got some things that are that are pretty adult to deal with, but ultimately is still like, I'm going to get in trouble for skipping first period. <laughs> yeah. Was, it, was there anyone else that uh, stuck out to you in terms of the cast? For me, and I know that, that Ryan Johnson felt the same way, I thought Noah Segan, the guy who played Dode, yeah. was a highlight of this movie. He is so incredibly fun to watch, and you could tell he was having so much fun with the character. Where's Dode? Hey, Brendan. Maybe you shouldn't be here. Kara told me you know where M's at. Uh-huh. And why are you looking for M? She asked for my help. Uh-huh. Well, listen, man, I got plenty on my plate without dealing with some jilted X. It's not about that. Well, whatever it's about, X smarter than you look and drop it. Where's she at? You better get while it's good. Feel it now, dig? No one at me if you want hash head. I got all five senses and I slept last night. That puts me six up on the lot of you. It's easy, bro. 
Where's M? Where's M? She's with me. She was tight when she called you, man. King to freak, told me to shake you if you came by. Said you'd only make things worse. Deal with whatever this ain't about and drop it. Tell him I want to see her. Tell her if she wants my help or not. It's her business. But I want to hear it straight from she her. Today, me. she knows where I eat lunch. And stay out, man. Yeah, no, I agree. And these characters are pretty awesome in a sense that, yeah, you're watching it, you're trying to take in all this information, but they're so well-defined. You know, Dode and the Brain and Pin and Tugger. And they have these names that, again, are yeah. very, like, noir-like names. They sound like like gangsters and stuff. Well, and it's, it's very interesting because if you go back through it, you know, I recognize that th this is honestly a movie where you you can feel for him coming in as like this this very first time indie filmmaker there's very much this blend when it comes to the actors you have the actors like Noah Segan like Joseph Gordon-Levitt who either have been at this for a while or they are, have such a natural talent for it that they are their breakouts you can see you know the talent in them as they're doing it and then you compare it to some people like the guy who played the pin or or the guy who was playing tug where you could tell, like, they want to be actors or they are working to become actors, but there's just this little bit of them that feels like they're not there yet. Like, you can feel the actor playing Tug acting. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things where it's, it's a little distracting, but at the same time, it's another thing that I feel adds credence to this air of kids pretending to be adults. Yeah, and, you know, this this kind of imbalance that you bring up, and that's a good point, you kind of see it a lot, as you said, like early filmmaking, like first-time filmmaking, and in these high school films. And not for much, like, not probably for the reasons that Ryan Johnson had to cast or cast these people, which I don't mm -hmm. know what they were, budget or... or just like inexperienced. I would say it's it's probably budget. It's that he doesn't really have much of a connection, and I wouldn't be surprised if a large amount of this cast is people from the San Clemente area. Mm. That he was like, I'm casting a movie. If you want to be in it, like you know, let me know, and we'll we'll audition you. And it's like, all right, I've got about ten people, so I guess you're all gonna get roles. Let's do this. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of a lot of things in my past. But mm -hmm. <laughs> in high school films, though, a lot of times we see that with um, how can I put it? In terms of they hire, like, talented people or pretty people, and they try to mix both. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't mesh as well. I, I know exactly what you're saying. It was distracting at some times, but it didn't really, like, pull me out of it completely because I did, again, recognize that these are supposed to be high school students, so it wasn't so crazy. But, yeah, no, yeah. I, I think you're right with who... Who were the standouts here? It's also recognizing that a lot of these characters, they fit into archetypes. So, mm -hmm. like, you know, Tug is meant to be the loud, brash muscle. You know, there's there's points where they push a little bit for him to be a little more deeply rounded out. And I think, honestly, they, they do well with those. But it's, you know, his whole thing is yell and shout and raise his fist at people. So it's it's he's fitting the mold that he needs to for the character. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so what do you think of the, uh, I guess, the women in this film? We, we have Laura, we have 
Emily, and then we have uh, what was Megan Good's character's name? Oh, uh, um, Kara. Kara, yes. It's again speaking to fitting into archetypes. It's very interesting, especially with Laura. It's very interesting to see her playing what is essentially the ingenue who is meant mm-hmm. to at the at the end become or be revealed as the the femme fatale. Um, and I think she did a good job with it, but it's it's another one of those ones where I feel like she fit as the ingenue for the longest time, once there was that twist where she was supposed to be kind of the, the brain behind the whole thing, it didn't land as well. It landed well enough. You know, I love the movie, but I feel like you didn't feel the overarching sense of, Oh my God, it was her. You're just like, Oh, okay. Like I'll yeah. buy it, but I also don't fully buy it. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. And I think we'll talk about it a little bit later when we talk about some scenes here. I definitely want to talk about that ending. Yeah, I, I don't know if I want to blame her or direction, but I, I know exactly what you're saying uh, when that happened. It was almost like, oh, that's cool. Like, and not in a negative way, but it, it was hard to patch how that would be. Yeah, <laughs> and I would say for the short amount of time that she had in this movie, I think um, Emily DeRaven, or Raven, I think is her last name, Emily, she did a very good job, but I think when I saw it, I was more overshadowed by, oh, that's the girl from Lost, <laughs> than anything else, and by the time, like, you thought, okay, there's gonna have to be some more from her, like, she's dead. Like, yeah. oh, okay. Well, never mind. <laughs> yeah, she's not too much in the film, but obviously, you know, things revolve around her. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. It's it's to to be the MacGuffin is tough. I just want to shout out Richard Roundtree as that assistant uh, vice principal, you know, Shaft himself. So that was interesting. <laughs> Nothing like seeing him become the man, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, let's get into it. Is there anything at the beginning of the film you want to talk about or, or early moments and such? I think this is one of the few times that I really appreciate a film that does what I like to call Tarantinoing. Yeah. Uh, where we start immediately at a moment that we will see again later before we jump back to the opening of the actual story. I appreciate it because it is a hook that does exactly what it is supposed to and does it better than a lot of other films try to. You know, you get that moment where he's crouched in the the canal staring at uh, Emily's dead body in the water before we jump back to, you know, her putting the the note in his locker. And it's it's that moment where I don't believe they do, like, a two days earlier title or anything like that. I think they just cut to her putting the note in the locker. And so you get that sense of, like, oh, okay, so we're going to see what led up to this moment. What I like is that it as you get further on you realize that it's it doesn't it's not leading up to the end of the story it's literally leading up to the end of the first act and i think that helped so much um that it wasn't like this was the last scene or like close yeah, this, to the last scene this this is him looking at what happened after everything happened and oh it it led to her dying and now we're done it's like oh okay well that's lame yeah no to be honest with you when i saw that on this watch, I, I was a little worried. I'm like, wait, is this, I can't remember. Is this how it ends? I'm like, oh, that, and then when, once it tied back, like you said, at the end of the first act, you're like, oh, okay. It's kind of awesome then. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's one of the things that I, I think is a better approach to that, that hook and then rewind sort of a, a aesthetic is that to literally show me the last moment of the movie and then be like, you know, bet you're wondering how I got into this wacky situation is more like, no, I, I'm fine with the idea of being like, hey, shit's gonna get real here. Let me show you what happened. And now that we caught up to where we have been, 
you have no idea where we go from here. So you're not constantly guessing, like, is this when she dies? Oh, this is when she dies. So this is the moment she, like, mm-hmm. the moment you get to the point where it's like, she's dead. You go, oh, shit, okay, what happened? <laughs> um, and you mentioned um, the title card or lack thereof. So apparently there actually is a title card that says two days previous, but it's something that Ryan Johnson has gone back and forth about whether he wanted to include or not there. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that, you know, you didn't even remember it, and I didn't either until I read that note, I guess, you know, <laughs> it really yeah, uh, tells us if it, was, if it was needed or not. It's, it is a thing where I feel like it isn't necessarily needed. I wouldn't be surprised if it wound up being a studio or whoever, you know, producer choice by being like, well, how are we going to know that this was in the past? It's like, I don't know, by paying attention, but... Because, <laughs> you know, you have a lot of movies that'll pull that, but it, it is one of those things where it's like, because I don't remember it, it's like, it wasn't needed. In the same vein as, like, you know, back when we were in school, you know, Joe Joe and, and Tobin will tell you that, you know, the biggest thing that, that we got drilled into our head was, if you could tell a story without the VO explaining it, then it's fine. But if the VO, if the voiceover has to explain to you what's happening in the story, then you're not, you didn't write it properly. Mm, yeah, I mean, and it makes total sense. Now, so and I, it's honestly speaking of sorry, speaking okay. of you know noir, it is very refreshing to see that they decided not to go with something like a voiceover for this, because as we could see with this movie, it wasn't needed. There was never a point where I needed to have Brendan's internal monologue about what was going on. You kind of always got a sense as to what he was thinking or how he was feeling, despite the fact that he is notoriously this very closed-off character. Okay, that kind of leads me to something I read. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but and I don't know if I believe it either, but there's a theory out there that says that the brain is actually his brain, and that doesn't exist as a separate person. And it's a theory that Ryan Johnson has not confirmed or denied. He's acknowledged it, and he just refuses to answer it. Can't let her go, Brian. I was set to, but I can't. I don't, I don't think I can. Do you think you can help her? No. You think you can get the straight? Maybe break some deserving teeth? Yeah, I think I could. Well? So I'm gonna walk from this brain. I'm gonna drop it. Walk from it. Drop it. It's your thick, Brendan. Yes, I am. I need you to out. Like on Jerry, that was cake to this, and unlike Jerry, there's not much chance of coming out clean. 24-7 on this one. Okay, that for me again? So what, first, tip the bulls? Nah, bulls, gum it. And flash their dusty standards, the wide eyes, probably find some yig to pin. Probably even the right one. They'd trample the real tracks and scare the real players back into their holes. If we're doing this, I want the whole story. No cops. Not for a bit. So what's first? I don't know. Your mom still have that cell? In her car? I bought it for a few days. Give me the number. Yeah. I'll wait for my word. And, um, 
Cover for me first, and then uh, be a little late. Um, first, have you had you heard this theory? I have heard this theory, and I I recognize parts as to where they 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 talk on this things like how he never interacts with Brain and somebody else at the same time. Mm. Um. The, the shot at the end after he talks to Laura on the football field, Brain shows up in the background and literally, like, steps out from behind his head and then, like, steps back in and oh, it's just, yeah. like, not there. I think the only problem I have with that is there are several scenes where he is literally on the phone with Brain discussing situations. <laughs> and especially it's towards the end. He calls Brain and he tells him you know, wait until like 5 a.m., then call the police, give them this address, tell them to look in the trunk of this car because of whatever. And because he was already at the Pin's house during this whole meetup between the Pin and Tug, there's no way he could have set it up himself that that was going to happen. I mean, maybe he could have, but he would have called the police what, outside the house, and then expected that it would take them exactly an hour or 45 minutes or whatever to show up. It It's it's an interesting one, but I feel like there are a couple of holes that make it so that it's not airtight. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I didn't, I wasn't thinking that until I read that theory after, and... No, it's, it's one that's, yeah. it's a fun theory, but I don't think it's indicative of the story that that needs to be true. No, I agree with that for sure. Because I did, uh, you mentioned the voiceover thing, and there were some people, you know, whose reviews I read that said, like, oh, in place of voiceover, he speaks to a character who's actually his brain. But, you know, <laughs> I'm in lockstep like, with you. Yeah. I'm not sure that it's, that's it's, true. Like I said, it's it's cool. It's interesting. If that turned out to be true, fine. But I am not, I'm not one where I have a read of it that I need that to be true to enjoy this. Yeah, I know. I agree. Um, so anything else? Um, any other scenes you want to talk about early on or, or how this whole first act is set up? Um, let's see. I mean, it, the, the, the whole first act, I think, is very interesting in just the fact that it's it's bringing us into this, like I had said a couple of times, it's bringing us into this world that's that's definitely much bigger and much more adult than high school tends to be. Um... And even just, you know, the way that they they make comments about school that feels bigger and more important than normal. Things like, you know, where are you eating lunch these days? You know, it's 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 like, you know, you go to the same school, man. There aren't that many places where people <laughs> eat lunch. Like, but it's yeah. I think uh, the one moment that I really do enjoy and it's it's a couple of really great mo- it's it's it, honestly it's it's a really great moment for Joseph Gordon-Levitt is after he finds Emily's body mm-hmm. you get that that silent moment where he's just kind of sitting there looking at her and you you are reading everything on his face of the grief that she has died the anger that he couldn't stop it and then once he hides the body and he goes back to school and he has the conversation with Brain and there's that that, you know, double entendre conversation of, like, you know, find Emily. Uh, I, you know, I tried, like, you know, oh, couldn't raise her. It's like, ah, I get it, because she's dead. Mm-hmm. But it's it's the moment where he finally sets into this determination of, all right, 
I guess they're dragging me back into this, you know, quote-unquote world of crime that I dove into when I got Jer arrested for drug dealing. And so he, it's this whole thing where he's, he's laying out this plan, like, essentially off the top of his head to brain about, like, all right, I'm going to have to go in again, and this is going to be bigger than Jer, and I'm going to need you to keep your specs on, and just, like, he, he doesn't let himself grieve. He immediately flips into work mode. And it's, I'm not allowed to be sad, I have to do something about this. And so the only thing I can do is find out who and why and make them pay. Yeah, and it's awesome. It really sets the tone for the rest of the film, which might as well be called Joseph Gordon-Levitt Gets Punched a Lot. (laughs) Gets punched, uh, almost gets hit by a car. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is very interesting that a large portion of this movie is just him proving his mettle by saying, like, I, I will get back up after you knock me in the face. Yeah. <laughs> I also, Quite. I think, I think one of my favorite moments of the entire movie is, it's a little bit after this when he, he's leaving school and he, he sees Tug's car in the parking lot of the mm-hmm. mall. And so he goes walking up, and his first thought is is that he's going to go bashing the window in with a piece of cement to try and, like, make him, you know, send a message. And he sees Tug walking back to the car and sees him, like, you know, walking with, like, you know, gripping his fists and he's ready to get mad. So he goes, all right, I know what I'm going to have to do instead. And he walks over, and he sits on the hood of the car, and he calmly takes his glasses off, puts them in a carrying case, puts them into his coat because he knows he's about to get hit in the face. And it's... It's a mix of both just the, the, that character moment, but it's also probably one of my favorite things that Johnson does with the camera at this moment. And this is one of the reasons why I, I demand people see this movie. Is because the way that the, the, the shot is set up is it's sitting there where on the right side of the screen is the car with Joseph Gordon-Levitt sitting on it. And then you've got coming from the background into the foreground is Tug to come meet him. And as he's about to try and talk to Tug, Tug just immediately winds back and punches him in the face. And as he does that, the camera does this crazy sped up like dolly zoom from where it is to right in front of the two of them as he gets punched. And it's just, it's it's one of those things where I can't explain why he does it. Like, it, it just feels like it's a cool film school thing to do. But it just, it's always stuck in my mind from that moment. Yeah, and there are, there are a lot of cool you know, quote-unquote, film school stuff, like, in this film. And, you know, this is a very pretty film, but I don't know, maybe to some people it felt pretentious, but it really didn't feel pretentious to me. Like, it wasn't like just, that shot is not a shot for a shot's sake, you know? It it does, and and that's the thing. I recognize that it has a reason, and I recognize he did it for a reason. It's got this this interesting feeling of, like, the way that, that, time kind of warps the moment you get punched in the head that like things don't feel right. They don't look right. And you, you have to recover. So it's just this hyper focus of going from the two of them about to have a conversation to the only thing that you're focusing in on is him getting punched because it's the only thing he gets to focus on now. Um, and it's just, it's, it's this great little, it's such it's like it feels like it could be such a throwaway moment, but he's able to make it a thing that is just so memorable in a movie that has so many things to remember. And um the cinematographer here, Steve Yedlin, like I mean he's well, he's Ryan Johnson's cinematographer, like he did uh The Last Jedi and Looper. And he's also done a lot of other cool stuff too, and like 
you know, well-earned as this being, like, one of his first films. Oh, absolutely. And th- that's the thing that I, I think I really like about about Johnson is that he kind of created a family of filmmaking when he did this. And once it got him noticed, he made sure that everybody involved came with him as he moved on. Hmm. Because, like, awesome. you know, all the way up until Last Jedi, Noah Segan's in Last Jedi. Um... Joseph Gordon-Levitt is a voice in Last Jedi. Like, granted, no, he didn't need Ryan Johnson. Like, he already had his own career. No. But he showed up because this is a dude who he didn't just work with, he became friends with. And I think that's a thing I really like about Johnson, is he he doesn't just make a movie. He creates this movie, but he also builds a community within making it, and he wants to constantly have everybody succeeding along the way that's like the uh you know the film school dream right like you know yeah it's <laughs> kevin it's movie, it's, it's the kevin you. smith dream yeah i made a movie that got famous so now all of my friends are famous with me yeah i mean it's awesome and it's so you know uh, again we keep saying this but joseph gordon levitt was obviously famous before this but it just it feels like a new definitely the new chapter of joseph gordon levitt it does, film. and it's it is one of those things where you go back and you see. I I consider him having a career pre and post Brick. Pre Brick was you know Ten Things I Hate About You. It was Third Rock from the Sun. It was being the the little kid who showed up on Roseanne and you know Family Ties or whatever it was. And it was it was you know he was just a cute kid that grew up to be a cute kid that was kind of like a. a you know, a a teenage heartthrob for a little bit, and he didn't he didn't want that. And Brick was the movie he made to immediately come back and go, look, I want to be an actor now. I don't want to be a face that shows up on TV. I want to be getting roles that challenge me and that I have to work at. It's great because, like as we said, Ryan Johnson has, I think, you know, the the film school guy's dream. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has, like, the child actor's dream. It's like, yeah. okay, you know, because I, you know, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but I would feel like, I feel like most child actors, it wasn't their choice, you know? Like Very kind true, of, yeah. <laughs> kind of something that just happened to them. And then to, like, recognize that, step back, be like, I like this, I kind of want to do it differently, and then be able to do that, I mean, it's, it's awesome. So, like, yeah. and this, fil- this film gave him the chance to do that, so it's, it's super cool. And also to be able to dictate how your career goes and where. Whereas, you know, you have a lot of actors where they kind of, they struggle to get into it, and then once they finally find a niche, like, they're so desperate to remain in whatever level of, of recognition that they have that they will they will allow themselves to get typecast. They will allow themselves to fall into, you know, a certain area. And then after a while, they decide they're no longer fulfilled by this because they feel like they are a joke or they feel like they are a one-trick pony. Mm-hmm. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt was just like, "Look, if it doesn't work out, I'm happy to just walk away from it forever. But I would rather be doing this, you know, small independent film from a no-name director where I get to do something that I enjoy, rather than being, you know, the second lead of this random romance comedy that you know is whatever." Yeah, and. Even, like, today, his quote-unquote bad films, you really feel like he wanted to do them. So I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Yeah. I feel like after Brick, he went after things that were either 
ones that he felt he personally was interested in the character or he specifically thought, you know what? I would really like to actually work with say this director. Yeah. No, I, you know, I have to agree a hundred percent with that. Like, you know, maybe, maybe inception and dark Knight rises weren't things that were like, you know, calling to him as this is a character you need to play. <laughs> but like, I am really interested in working with Christopher Nolan. I get that. Yeah, and then and there's also projects he did too where you could tell he just had a lot of creative control over his character. Yeah, like um, uh, Hesher is one that almost mm. nobody has heard of, but it's it's literally he he just plays this like you know kind of anarchist drifter character who kind of wanders into the life of a single mother and her son, and becomes this like makeshift father figure to a kid who in all honesty <laughs> he should be looking for a better role model but is like teaching this kind of like meek little kid how to like you know uh. take control of his life while also you recognize kind of teaching him some shitty lessons but maybe he'll grow out of those parts it's just you know it, it's these movies where like you wouldn't expect them of him and i think what it ultimately boils down to is joseph gordon levitt got the career that didn't need to have the gigantic draw of, like, DiCaprio. Because DiCaprio came from being a child actor himself. Mm -hmm. And he also struggled with breaking out of that, you know, cute teenager stage after doing things like Titanic. Like, DiCaprio didn't want to be the, the tiger beat heartthrob. He <laughs> wanted to be an actor. And I feel like Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in the same boat but because they kind of came up in the same time, they weren't going to both be at that same level. No. And I think it worked to Levitt's benefit that there was already a DiCaprio out there. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'm not saying Leonardo DiCaprio has had an easy life. I mean, it seems like he has, but <laughs> um, <laughs> it's easier, too, to be like these uber heartthrob like DiCaprio was. And, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was playing a lot of, like, nerds and... and and geeky characters, so... Yeah. It, it's super cool, and again, I know we've, like, gone on a little Joseph Gordon-Levitt tangent, but I think it's There's no way you don't film. with this movie, though. Exactly, exactly. All right, so, because we have recognized that, shall we, shall we venture back to Act 2 of the film? Yes, of course. <laughs> and again, anything else you want to talk about in this film? It's up of to course. you. Act 2, you know, has, has definitely some of, some of the more fun moments of the movie, as it always does. Um, I think Act 2 houses probably what might be one of my favorite quotes from the entire film, which is when he goes to uh, shake down Dode about information about Emily and her connection to the pin and whatever else. He goes to threaten Dode because Dode's holding out information, and he mentions that, you know, all of his stoner buddies are hanging out off, you know, over to the side of the, the pie shop that they hang out behind. And there's about five or six of them, and so he, he basically decides, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get intimidated by a bunch of stoners. So he walks back, and he, he tells all of them, you know, I've, I've got all five senses working for me, and I slept last night, so I'm six up on the lot of you. Who wants to try me? <laughs> and it's that moment where I was just like, damn, that is a fucking great line. <laughs> and it's, it's great because it also works. Like, they immediately are like, all right, man, you don't got to <laughs> – I think it's, it's that followed by once he leaves – the one buddy just called after him, like, and stay out, man. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. probably some of the best moments of the movie. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> and then, you know, he's just, he's just like on this quest that, um, 
you know, he kept imp- the character I'm talking about now. He he kept impressing me with um, because you know, like I said, this is it wasn't the first time I'd seen it, but the first time I'd really been paying attention like this. And he just kept impressing me with just his knowledge of the world and of and of everybody, and just seemingly and not in a weird way, just like knowing what to say to just pick on people's insecurities and get what he wanted out of them. You know, I just loved going on this journey with him. Yeah, and it's it's funny is is that there's there's an aspect of the movie that I think it plays a bit on like that um that catcher in the rye attitude of just being like, you know, being the one who feels like you're on the outside of all of it and you're able to see through the bullshit of all of it. And it's it's a thing that I know it's it it plays to a lot of the the nerds of high school, as, uh-huh. as many of us were, where you feel like that you were the one who, like, you know, you saw through the bullshit, man, of, like, <laughs> you know, the fucking jocks, man, and all, it's all a popularity contest and all that <laughs> crap. It's funny because it's it's recognizing the the hypocrisy of Brendan in the fact that he is able to see through everybody's crap but his own. It's just the idea that, like, you know, he's got everybody pegged for you know, the, the theater vamp or the rich girl who gets what she wants or the, the jock who, you know, feels like he's king of the world, but he cannot see that his own personality of the lonely outsider who doesn't want to be a part of it is just another stereotype. And that is so high school. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, as much as we say this is not your stereotypical high school film, it's relatable and understandable because, again, it's so high school. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's it's such an interesting aspect to look into it where it's like, for the longest time you're following a character that you feel like is your window into it until you recognize that he is just as much a part of it as anybody else. He's just the only one who refuses to accept it. Yeah. Really quickly, because I just remembered this. I know we see the vice principal, but we don't see too many adults, like quote-unquote adults, in this film, right? Um, beyond, uh, the assistant vice principal and the pin's mom, I don't think we see a one. Yeah, and, which I always, like, find interesting, um, it's always an interesting choice to do something like that, and especially, especially in this one, because again, like, I know, again, rudimentarily, I know it's not this, but it is kind of kids being, like, adults, so I don't know how good the adults would have fit in this world, except as the supreme authorities like uh, the assistant vice principal. And I think it's interesting is that the the assistant vice principal, he plays as that supreme authority that a kid in high school would see. That, mm-hmm. yeah, there's the threat of the police, but, like, the assistant vice principal, that's when you know you're in fucking trouble. <laughs> um, but I also love the fact that the, the pin's mom is used as this twist on expectation because the kingpin, he's supposed to be this this great, powerful figure in the world of the drug ring that's going through, you know, this town. But he lives with his mom. And, you know, while he's conducting his business, his mom is offering cereal <laughs> to the guy that he is essentially holding a hostage. <laughs> And it's just, it's this great little moment where you still see this this little break where it's like, all of this is so serious, but it's also so ridiculous. Yeah, I wrote it down as like, this is a great reminder that, yeah, these people, again, the, they're in like a huge drug ring or whatever, but and there's people dying around them, but they're still they're still kids, you know? Yeah, it's, it's the kingpin <laughs> is what, 23? Yeah. Like, he's, he's still a fucking child, man. <laughs> 23, living at home you know, who's one of his ultimate authorities, 
is his mother. Is his mom. And yeah, his his mom who has the the country style apple juice that she serves in a rooster <laughs> like a uh, pitcher. It's it's just it's, it's it's this great little bit, and it's 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 that kind of sense of humor about genre that I think has followed um, Johnson throughout his career, and it's one of those ones that you really see. And I know a lot of people were upset about, but you really see kind of play out in Last Jedi. Where you have that moment where there's this big epic moment of Luke being handed his lightsaber again after all these years, and then he just kind of tosses it to the side because ah yeah I gave up on that, and so it's yeah, it's 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 that's taking, a really good point. It's taking this build of what we are meant to believe is important and what we are meant to believe through the story is significant, and kind of reminding us it's not though. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's a really good point with Star Wars. And as we talk about Brick, and I wasn't a Last Jedi hater, FYI, but as we talk about Brick and uh, I think about it, it's like, hey, you hand the keys to this guy who's really so stylized, and it's like, what do you what do you expect? Um, again, I'm not a hater, but, you know, you yeah. pointed out some important things, and like I'm like, oh, you know, that makes a lot of sense. It is... It is one of those things where I think any any time I have a discussion about the Last Jedi and especially about Ryan Johnson directing it, I point to Looper and I said if you, if you see Looper, you will see exactly the movie that you are expecting to get from Last Jedi because again with the the bit of comedy, there's this great moment where Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character in that movie and funny enough Noah Segan's character in that movie uh, are are in like a shootout that happens in a diner because they're chasing after Bruce Willis. And at the end of that, like Noah Segan comes running out and he's firing his gun at Bruce Willis and he misses and he throws the gun and it lands barrel first in the dirt. And it's just this funny little visual. But what you also recognize is that there's this moment where both he and Joseph Gordon-Levitt are standing there watching Bruce Willis like drive away until they both realize that each other is there and they are also antagonists of each other. <laughs> and then Joseph Gordon-Levitt goes running because he realizes, oh, shit, and, like, takes <laughs> off. Yeah, wow. No, I remember that scene now. That's awesome. So it's it's just this little moment where, like, there is there is this brief bit of levity before we come back into the point where we're like, oh, yeah, right, the movie. And you totally get that here, both uh, in Brick, both... Uh... You know, dialogue-wise, or even the scene you were just talking about, but also just like shot-wise and style-wise. Uh, you know, you get that. You know, when you're seeing this, the Megan Good character, uh, I keep mm-hmm. forgetting her name. Kara. Um, yeah, it's so like visually striking and funny, and she's got that like her lap dog. I think one's called Lap Dog, but she's got like freshman like that, and, mm-hmm. and it's just. It's, it's showing this like awesome power angle, and it's alluding to um, Justin Gordon-Levitt's past here with her. And that's that's the thing that I also like about it is it's it's a story that builds on the idea of it takes place in just a certain part of a life in a world that exists. There is a past he has with characters. There are stories we haven't heard, and stories that we won't get told. And it's it's enough for you to be like, okay, I kind of get the idea, and I personally have the ability to build this other narrative for myself in order to feel more connected because like high school these are all things that people have gone through people had that freshman relationship with somebody that that wound up going sour and now they don't Mm -hmm. like each other 
And so it's you get to build on that idea of like, oh, yeah, she's probably just like this person that I know. I fully have this character figured out now. Maybe in something where, again, people aren't saying it's super realistic to high school. One of the most realistic things is that the fact that let me backtrack a little. So many high school films, you start out and it seems like it's a blank slate. That's why they always introduce a new kid or something like that. Yeah. This one, there's so many past things that we don't know about that we just get little hints about, and that's actually high school. Something embarrassing happens to you your freshman year, and everyone's remembering that till your senior year. That's just how high school works. And the fact that in so many other movies, like they're meeting characters, like they don't know everyone. And I know there are some bigger high schools, but at least my, for my high school experience, maybe everyone wasn't friends with everybody. But everyone at least knew of everyone. Oh, yeah. You get a sense of that here. Yeah, and that's that's true. Like, I didn't know every single person in my high school, but I'll definitely tell you, I at least knew my graduating class, and there were mm-hmm. definitely people in other grades that I knew of or had some sort of relation to. Um, yeah, yeah, I should have clarified. Definitely, like, in your class, you knew everybody. Yeah. And you kind of knew maybe the people you almost had to know or made themselves known in the rest of the school. And I think what is interesting about Brick compared to a lot of other high school movies is in the fact that we're not pulling this new kid in school trope. (laughs) It means we don't have to worry about that moment where, like, somebody has brought them under their wing and they're like, that's the skater clique, and those are the nerds, (laughs) and those are the popular kids. Like, we're not getting that constant, like, reaffirmation of certain stereotypes and getting, like, that exposition moment where we're being introduced to all the major players instead it's we are already established with a person who has been going to this high school for years they already have where they belong and know people outside of that and we just kind of have to figure it out for ourselves as we go we're not being talked down to because we are being treated as if we know what high school is and how it operates oh yeah 100 percent. i like how you put that I mean, yeah, any other scenes before we get to the ending that really stuck out to you or you want to talk about? For our break into three, Dode getting shot is the, it is the moment of this movie. It is the moment that Ryan Johnson is most proud of in this movie. Mm. Not only because of the cinematography for it, you know, the, the, the framing of him right in the mouth of the tunnel as he's being shot. Dode here says Emily Costich is dead. Oh, yeah? He says he knows who did it. He says he knows where the body is. Yeah. He says he wants more money than I think the information is worth. So dope. So walk. What's the info I have to do with you anyways? Plenty. Plenty, he says. Uh-huh. He wants cash on the nail. It's a pot skulled reform with more hop in his head than blood. I pay for dirt you can't believe. No, you'll believe this. Maybe you will. No, you will. Because it's someone close to you. Real close. Maybe it's hot, but it's dope. You can't trust it. Real close.
my shoes wet for this. Let him milk you if you want. Stay. It's still too much. No, it isn't. You won't complain when you hear it. Maybe you should. You had her up against the wall with the bread. I know my business. Still too much. No, it isn't, because that's not why she was killed. But it's real important to you. Because the person who killed her is real close. Because he's got a lot to lose. And he knows if I don't bury him by spilling a you, I spill little bulls and I bury him for real. And he's really, really scared. She had a kid in her and he couldn't stand it! <laughs> Ryan Johnson has said in the commentary it is one of his favorite moments because it was a fuck-up that turned into an amazing shot. Because when he gets shot and they do the blood spray out the back of the head, mm -hmm. there's this moment where there's also this puff of, like, smoke that passes essentially through his skull from getting shot. And that was the squib um, mechanism that they had built misfired and after it you know did the blood spray to make it look like he got shot it was all of the hydraulics of it were then leaking out of it at once and it caused this like mist to then spit uh -huh. out of the hose wow. and he said he said it was essentially us screwing up but it looked like the smoke from the gun was essentially passing through the bullet wound in his head and it became such a striking visual i needed to keep it I mean, I don't disagree. Like, that was awesome. Uh, just, again, how this scene is set up and the feelings of the scene. And then when you get to that moment, it's like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's one of those moments where it's it's building tension. It's building tension. And it's it's another moment like like discovering Emily's body where you realize we are out of our depth now. This has This has left... The, you know, the, the world of high school yet again, because now someone has been shot. Like, someone has been murdered in front of our main character, who, by the way, is, like, dying of internal bleeding. Oh, my God, yeah. And uh, we didn't touch on that yet. I mean, but understandably, how many times he's gotten hit. Yeah, just with how, how much he has gotten his ass kicked, and by the way, is not sleeping for 24 hours, <laughs> like 48 hours, something like that. It is just like, yeah, he's he is falling apart internally as we move through this story. You know, I hope, you know, listeners out there, you haven't actually felt like that. But when you watch the film, you almost feel like you can feel like that. Like, oh, it is it is one of the best things about his performance in this is Joseph Gordon-Levitt makes everything about the character so visceral that you you yourself are feeling the the terrible, like the cough he does. I don't know how you fake that. I don't know what he did, but it's like you can hear him coughing liquid out of his lungs. Yeah. <laughs> it's so like, oh, my God, you know. Um, so I, I watched the film, and then I usually like watch the film twice just to refresh myself for the podcast. 
and I'll often like watch it on the subway or just watch it like on my phone. This is again my second watch, mm-hmm. and while it's still good, like it doesn't really do it justice. Like you need the good audio and just to be in a good room with the good lighting, you know, yeah. to really really appreciate what's happening and what Joseph Gordon-Levitt is doing. It is a movie that is built to be seen cinematically, mm-hmm. which is very very impressive for being what could ultimately amount to like a student film. Yeah. I mean, granted it wasn't, it, it had some backers. He had money behind it, but you know, this was his first ever feature length movie to say that this is a feature length debut that needs to be seen in a theater like setting is baffling. It's it's crazy. Again, I can do that with this podcast because so many high school films, like it really doesn't matter. Not to say that they're bad, but it really doesn't matter if I watch them on the subway with my headphones. But yeah. this one's I'm, not. I'm not going there. to feel like I missed a lot of Pretty in Pink <laughs> if I was texting during it. <laughs> yeah. No. Exactly. But this is this is a movie where if you miss a visual cue in the first five minutes then the twist ending doesn't make sense. Like we said, it's not a film to put on at a party. Or yeah. or, or I say this a lot, too, because sometimes I'll catch up on maybe movies I missed in the theater when I'm taking a long flight somewhere, and sometimes it's fine. This is not a movie I would watch on the airplane, either, you know? No, and it, I mean, granted, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's dark enough, like, if you're doing a red eye, maybe, but you also have to have some pretty good headphones, and yes, you have to hope that, cute. like, the flight is not, like, full of babies. <laughs> no, no, so, yeah, like, like you said, I mean, you know, you put it bet this is, like, a cinematic movie, it's a theater movie. Yeah, but as we make our way into the third act of it, I think if there's any moment that needs to be talked about from the third act, it is the moment uh, when Brendan is at Tug's house after the shooting has happened, you know, the Tug and the, the Tug and the Pin are now at each other's throats about mm. uh, killing Dode, about Emily, about the brick, all of that. Um, I feel I feel like it's interesting to say these things without like having explained what they were previously. <laughs> but it's again, it's one of those things where it's like I don't I don't want to explain it. Like, see the no. movie, you will get what I'm telling you. Um. But it's the moment after he is kind of spending a little bit of time there with with Laura, and it's it's for the first time in like seventy two hours he has been told to stop and just sit still, and finally all of the emotion about Emily getting killed catches up to him, and he breaks down crying. And if there is a moment in this movie that proves to you, and it's it's always funny because it feels like crying is such a thing that like is so such an actory thing to have happen. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, if you could cry real good, you're a good actor. But it's like, this is one of those moments where to see him, having known the character, who the character is, how he behaves, to see this moment where he finally allows himself to just feel and it, it overcomes him is such a powerful moment and it is so devastating to watch. Because it is it is watching this character who has basically built himself to be this almost Harrison Ford-esque, you know, man who doesn't feel anything, proving that he's just a kid. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was like the big moment for me, just like the way this scene is unfolding. And <laughs> again, you have to be with him for the entire journey to really attempt to feel what he's feeling in this scene. Yeah, and it's 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 this weird moment because it's 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 like you 
on one part you recognize you're like yeah I get it you know this this person he loved died and he didn't let himself feel anything about it until someone made him do so and now he can't not feel it because he has nothing that he can distract himself with but it it's just that that also that thing to be like he's like 15 yeah this is like a 15 year old kid who just found out his girlfriend was murdered and like yeah I'll I'll, I'll admit you know when I was in high school a friend of mine died in a car accident uh, our junior year. And it wasn't even, like, he was a friend. I knew him. We got along really well. But it's like, we never really spent time together outside of high school. And we weren't best friends or anything like that. But it's it's this moment where, at, at an age where you feel like nothing can hurt you, to face the idea that you can die from something really stupid is devastating and to then realize that that has happened to somebody that you saw every day is not easy to process and it's like even for it to be a kid who i saw at school we had some fun we made some jokes with each other and then next thing i know he's dead it was really really hard to get through and i couldn't even imagine now to look back and be like what was that like for the kids who were friends with him since he was a child what was that like for his parents? What was that like for his girlfriend or anything like that? So to see this moment with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, it's it's to really focus on that idea of these are kids who shouldn't have to deal with this kind of shit, but they do. And when they do, it is heartbreaking. Yeah, I, I was someone who also lost someone around that age very close to me. And, you know, that like that's the moment I know, like... It's some people struggle with it, but in terms of like, I can tell you like the moment I kind of grew up forcibly. It's funny enough to to touch on another movie that's in no way related to this, but just one that I I enjoyed when I was younger. There is a quote from the movie The Crow, <laughs> which was, "My father told me childhood's over the moment you know you're gonna die," Ooh. and it's 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 rough. It is a morbid yeah. thing to think, <laughs> but it is also probably one of the most true things is that how do you hold on to the innocence of childhood the moment you recognize your own mortality? And, and even though in this film they're like involved in some really adult stuff with this like drug trade, it's it doesn't matter, you know. At this point, yeah. um it, you know, just it reminds me really again not to this level, but my one friend at my other friend's who passed funeral he was doing so much to kind of just distract him from what was happening in terms of like helping and setting up. And then he had like a similar moment where just there was there wasn't anything left to do almost, but just like collect and decompress like that. And it really reminded me of that. And yeah, such a real moment. Yeah. And it's funny is that I also remember there was a moment where, you know, it was it was just after like they had announced that that he had he had passed away in the hospital uh, a bunch of people in my grade had decided like, hey, you know, we're all going to meet up at this one kid's house. We're going to kind of have a not so much a party. It was kind of a party, but it was it was it was like a we're going to do this this like celebration of his life sort of a thing. And it was interesting because it was a moment where, you know, people I never really talked to kids in my grade. I knew of I had interacted with maybe but like never actually spent time with in any capacity. Mm hmm. Like, everybody was on such an equal footing at that moment. There was no clicks. There was no, like, there wasn't even, like, a bully aspect. Like, anybody that you knew, they were welcome there, and everybody was just like, 
yeah, man, like you get that moment where everything that maybe felt like it was important in high school kind of washed away for a night because you recognize that there was something far more powerful going on than who was dating who or who played football or anything like that. And I think it's such an odd thing to say, and it, it feels both powerful and morbid to think that my graduating class, by the time we all graduated, kind of transcended that standard high school like stereotype or trope because we all felt united in commemorating this one kid hmm. that we all knew in some way or another. And so our graduating year felt like a united front because since he died, every single one of us felt like we had to live our lives together and to the fullest for him. Wow. And it's it's a weird tangent to go on. It's a thing I haven't talked about in maybe fucking 15 years. Wow. But um, it's it's interesting, and I think that's maybe part of as to why this scene in particular is so powerful to me is because I have been in that position. And it may not have been as connected as, say, my ex-girlfriend was shot and dumped mm -hmm. in a river, but to, to have that moment where you have to kind of finally face that reality is so powerful. See, guys, it's not just fun and games on High School Slumber Party. We talk about the real stuff here. Yeah, check that. I brought a movie you had to feel at. <laughs> no, and, you know, you're so right. And it's exactly what you said, though. If you don't watch this movie and you just think, uh, so the silly noir film, like, made you feel all those emotions? I don't get it, you know? <laughs> like, Yeah. Uh, you just you just got to watch Brick. Like, there's no I, way I around think it's. It. It's one of these things where it's it's so easy to say that it's a movie set in high school where a kid gets killed. And you're like, oh, wow, that's that sounds crazy. But it's like, it is interesting to recognize how in a post-Columbine, post 911 post world, the idea of a movie set in high school where a kid is shot and killed isn't as devastating to some people as you would hope it would be. And it's it's tough to think of, but it's also an interesting thing to think back on in that it's like, this should be a thing that fucking ruins people to think about. Yeah. And so it's, it's one of those things where like, I kind of hope it does. Like I would hope somebody would watch this movie and be very devastated at the idea of what happened. It is beautifully shot. It is a very interesting concept. It is very well acted, but at the end of the day, it should also be a movie that really fucking upsets you. No, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and in this, um, on this podcast, it's something I've really learned that there are tropes, there are things that happen in a lot of these films. And even like, sometimes you could take, oh, kid dying in high school, and it's just like, again, a dumb student film or something. I like, mm -hmm. and I hate to say it, but you do something well, you do, you know, you do something well with artistic merit, and you could re pretty much take any idea and, like make me feel i'll put it that way you know yeah take take an idea of i took a, a classic noir story and i said it in high school that can fail in so many ways or it can be done so well that 10 what is it 12 years down the road you're directing star wars <laughs> yeah i mean when you put it in that perspective holy shit <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> That's a really, really, really good point. And again, you know, I know we get lost in, you know, the how polarizing to some the lost Jedi was, but just Jesus Christ, yeah. I'm telling you now, man, just like Empire, you give it another ten to fifteen years, that movie's gonna be fucking beloved. Hey, if it's I anything swear. like this, not that Brick wasn't beloved when it came out, I don't even, you know, I don't know if it reached the main. I think it was mostly enough. ignored, honestly. Yes, I think yes. critics loved it. I think Hollywood loved it, but like, it didn't really reach much of an audience until probably after it hit DVD. You set up Brick with the expectations of Star Wars and like, you know, the lore and the history. Then you know, maybe it's having the same kind of reaction. I don't know. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. But it's yeah, I know. I mean. <laughs> yeah, if there if there was thirty years of build up to the high school noir genre, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, as silly as that is. Hashtag you ruined Brendan Fry. <laughs> oh man! So I mean, anything before the ending you want to get into? The whole the whole meetup at at the Pins House. It's interesting. It's an, it's it's a very it's a very noir way to wrap things up. That he he kind of you know flips around here and there, figures out who the real villain is, gets everybody either arrested or shot. <laughs> um, and then we, we have our, our final moment where we do the, the big wrap-up at the end where he, you know, explains the whole plot in case you haven't been watching. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I guess I, I'd say at the end it's it's probably best just to talk about the the actual ending, the, the final scene. Well, you know, we mentioned it earlier on in terms of, like, the acting, more the acting here, but... How did you think how this wrapped up? Like, what was your opinion on it? Did it satisfy you in terms of, like, the rest of the film? Or I think it did. I think the ending of this is probably the most noir this movie is. Because this is absolutely the, well, let me wrap it up for you real quick, mm-hmm. doll. <laughs> this is the most Humphrey Bogart this movie gets to be. Again, like I said, I, I buy the idea that Laura was the one who set up Emily with the, the brick of heroin being stolen and you know improperly cut to sell on her own and so on and so forth i think it's a little presumptuous for him to think that she would have hidden the giant brick of drugs in her fucking locker at school yeah um Again, that was very I mean, that was very noir like you're saying yeah, i just saw Humphrey I've, Bogart being like oh it's in the you know blah blah blah. you kept it in the safe. i mean i hope i hope you didn't put it in your locker like i thought you did yeah. it's like oh <laughs> shit okay and it's it's one of those things where it's like you know i've known some people who've done some dumb shit but if she's honestly gotten away with it for this long she didn't stash <laughs> it at school <laughs> um, but it almost but adds to like what you were saying in terms of, like, school is their world, so if she did, I guess, you know, I'm not saying it makes sense, it was a really No, 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 and I, 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 agree with, I agree with where you're coming from that. It's also the idea of, you know, that teenage sense of nothing can touch me. Yes. You know, I could, I could hide a brick of heroin in my fucking locker and no one would ever know about it. On this podcast, we always, like, you know, the biggest excuse for any move that happens is, well, it's teenagers, guys. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's dumb teenagers who don't know shit. But it's 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 that whole thing where it's like it's it is very well done. It's interesting. I think it's a little stilted in just how hard boiled detective the scene needs to be. It's it's this whole concept where it's it, I like it for the ending of this movie because of the fact that we are building on the idea of this being a very classic noir story set in high school. I do like the way that we we wrap this up and we kind of fall back onto that that noir narrative style 
I think it's not the strongest part of the movie, but I don't think it ruins the movie by the way it carries out. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in 100% agreement with you there. I Sometimes I don't like certain things. I, I don't know if you mentioned it, or I forgot if we mentioned it. Then there's a whole, like, the pregnancy reveal that it's probably his, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we had not mentioned it yet. Yeah, I mean, well, how'd you feel about that, I guess? The funny thing about it is this 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 movie really kind of reeked of being like a a Maltese Falcon Humphrey Bogart mm-hmm. kind of noir. That reveal is where we fall into Chinatown territory. Yeah, that's a good point. This is this is where we're in the very bleak ending of like by the way, you're the reason she died. <laughs> it's like okay, fuck. <laughs> Like, dude already had a lot to go through, and now you're gonna do that to him, bitch. Um, oh, I mean, granted, like at the same then? time, he, d- I thought it was fine. Again, it's it's another thing where if it wasn't there, I wouldn't be upset. I feel like if it wasn't expressly hinted at, it would have been a theory. I I would like the idea that she never even said like you know, oh, she never told you whose it was. I would have liked it more if it was like, oh, well, that's most of the story, but there's one thing that you didn't know about, and have her, like, whisper in his ear and walk away. Hmm. Don't have brains show up and be like, what did she say to you? <laughs> Just have her whisper in his ear, walk away, shot of Brendan watching her walk away, boom, cut to black. Because now you've got that, like, lost in translation moment yeah. where it's like, well, what did she whisper? And now you've got fucking 20, 20 million theories about what what was the whisper about? What did she say? What was the thing he didn't know about? And it'll be anywhere from, oh, he was the father of Emily's baby to uh, he just got, you know, Laura pregnant or something. I don't know. But I think if they had left it either out or a little more ambiguous, it would have been a better setup. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I didn't hate it, but I, I yeah. did think it was like a tad unnecessary it was, again, Ryan Johnson, obviously, I'm not a filmmaker, but he's a much better filmmaker and writer and all that than I am. I'm not saying I could do a better job. Well, then here's where I commit now. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the part to me that felt most like first film, if that makes sense. And I'm not saying that's... I, I could get what you mean, yeah. Not necess- um, I'm not saying it as necessarily a bad thing. And I just felt like it was unnecessary. But, you know, some people say, that's unnecessary. And, like, it ruins things for them and they didn't need it. I I could go either way with this is my point. And, yeah, that's that's my feeling on it as well. If they had left it out, I wouldn't have felt like it was missing anything. The fact that it's in the movie doesn't make me feel like it doesn't belong there either. Mm -mm. It's it's a thing where I'm like, okay, that's an interesting twist on it. Um that's dark as shit. <laughs> but you know what? That's the world that, that Ryan wants us to live in. I'm fine with that. You know, we are left with Brendan having to always stomach the guilt that he's the reason his girlfriend <laughs> got shot by a drug dealer. Um, oh boy. But it's also, you know, at the same time, if it had not been that, I think the problem may have been that Brendan almost came out a little too clean. Mm. And that's, that's not the noir that we have known for a little while now. That would have been very true of the Humphrey Bogart era. But in a like post-Chinatown world, to have Brendan essentially get himself tied up in a world of drugs and murder and, you know, all of this stuff and just kind of walk away with nothing but being the hero is not believable enough for a modern film. 
so I think adding in the idea that it was her or that it was his kid she was pregnant with puts just enough of a twist, maybe a little too dark of a twist, but just enough of a twist where it feels real. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I mean, that's a really good point. I guess I was so thinking of it as the Bogart style that I was like, huh, okay. But when you put it and that way, and you mentioned like Chinatown and the modern noir stuff, that's a really good point. And I think that's that's part of the problem is, is that because they, they took so much from the Maltese Falcon era to then give it a Chinatown ending feels abrupt and it feels a little out of out of place, but it is still something we have to recognize that it's set in a modern time. And it's set in a a time where accidentally getting your high school girlfriend pregnant, very real possibility. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I mean, again, now that we talk about it, I'm starting to, like, understand it and like it a little bit more. Yeah. It's it's interesting because it it ultimately gives you this idea of, like, Brendan Fry, smart enough to outsmart a bunch of drug dealers, doesn't use a condom. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I wish I could say that was unrealistic, but... Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know too many friends, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, this movie got 79% by the critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 86% by the audience. Pretty high scores, but here on High School Slumber Party, we rate things by giving it a report card grade, like old high school. So, Matt, Brick, what will you give it on an A to F scale? I'm giving it an A, man. This is one of my top five films. Wow. Films, not just high school films. Top five films. Wow, that's you know, high praise. That's awesome. I mean, yeah. I really liked it too. I gave it an A as well. Um, you know, I was between A minus and A, but really there wasn't much wrong I could say about this film. So it, it gets I'll, an I'll, A. I'll give you credit. This is probably one of the first times I have actually been critical of the film since I've seen it the first time. Almost any time before this, I like if if you had just out of nowhere been like, "How do you feel about Brick?" I'd have been like, "A plus, man, absolutely." But taking more time to really kind of break down a lot of it, I recognize like I wouldn't call it a perfect movie. It's it's still probably one of my favorite movies of all time, but I would not call it a perfect movie. No, and and that's fine. And again, considering this is his first feature effort, like you know, power to him. Um, yes, yeah. yeah, it was awesome. It was a pleasure. You know, just watching it again. Okay, I don't want to say pleasure, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a rough watch, but it's it's a movie that I am willing to watch over and over. <laughs> Absolutely. And, it, you know, it didn't feel dated, which was my, the, the part I feared the most. I think, I think the only thing, and the, funny enough is the only reason that it feels a little dated at one point. Now, granted, he actively made it that they used payphones to fit the noir theme Mm -hmm. but it's also the fact that it's like can i borrow your mom's cell phone and it's this (laughs) chunky looking flip phone but i was like oh yeah that's early 2000s but i liked that you know like i I liked that part of it because it reminded me you know you and i went to high school around the same time so it reminded me of being in that era so oh yeah a little nostalgia there I got my first ever cell phone at the age of 16, and it was this little Nokia thing that, you know, barely fit in a pocket. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I remember. (laughs) Okay, so uh, on High School Slumber Party, you know, every week we pick our sleeping bags themed like the movie. So (laughs) this is a random weird question for this film, but if you had to create a brick-themed sleeping bag or something that, a sleeping bag that inspired you from brick, what would it look like? 
Okay, so the top of the sleeping bag, like the area where you get in and it's it's the opening that your head sticks out of, mm-hmm. would be the opening of the canal Ooh. under the, the bridge. And like then it, it would just be the, the little river runoff that would run down to the bottom of the sleeping bag. Beautiful shot when they were shooting that, so I dig that mm-hmm. sleeping bag. And I know I mentioned it before, but when I came up with this podcast, it was all about me going into Blockbuster. It's the weekend me renting a film and then seeing that there was a rent to get one free thing and then thinking of what other movies I was going to rent for potentially the sleepover or just myself. So if you and I went into a blockbuster and we rented Brick, what other two movies uh, would you want to rent? Again, they could have existed after Brick and after Blockbuster. That doesn't matter. I would say if we were going to do a a slumber party where Brick was going to be a mainstay of what we watched, um, I would say to fit kind of part of the theme that you can feel from Brick, I would go with Heathers. Ooh, nice. And then as a palate cleanser, I would stick with Ryan Johnson, but I would go with the Brothers Bloom. Nice, cool. Now, I've recently been asking people this question. Um, What order would you watch them in at the sleepover? Oh, boy. Um, I would say probably I would go chronological. I would start with Heathers. I would do Brick second, and then I would end with Brothers Bloom, because that's the one where it's like 3 a.m. at this point. Um, (laughs) It doesn't matter if you fall asleep during this movie, (laughs) because it's fun, but it's definitely not his best. I like it. I like it. Makes sense. You know, it matters. It matters. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Matt. So anything you want to plug, or where can people follow you and and find you, or if that's what you want, or maybe you want to be mysterious? Who knows? Um, well, um, people can follow me. There's a few different places. Um, uh, in terms of my podcast, the Ginger Geek podcast, it is uh, one that you can find ultimately just about anywhere that podcasts can be downloaded or streamed. You can follow that on Twitter at the GNGR Geek Pod or on Instagram at Ginger Geek Pod as well. Away from that, I personally have my own uh, Twitter, Instagram and uh, YouTube channel where I do uh, voiceover work as well as just tweet about how much I don't like politics or um, wrestling. So it's uh, at mdelhauervo, which you can find on either Instagram or Twitter, or just Matt Delhauer on YouTube. Wait, you tweet about how you don't like wrestling? Not that I don't like wrestling. I do like wrestling. I just tweet about how much WWE upsets me. Oh, okay, okay. Well, you know, we <laughs> we can discuss that on a different show, perhaps. Beautiful. I like finding who the wrestling fans are. Because... No, yes, it's, <laughs> it's not specifically a Twitter where I just go, pro wrestling is stupid. That's, what I, that's like... what I thought you were saying. I was no, like, no, God, no. Like, oh, no, it's, it's, it's fake. Like... <laughs> no, oh, geez, no, it's, it's more along the lines of being like, oh, you call that an ending, you dumb idiots? <laughs> <laughs> and I know exactly what you're talking about. So. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, it was a pleasure. Oh, oh I was going to ask, um, can you tell our audience what your podcast is actually about, what you do there? Of course. Uh, so the, the the pitch I love giving is the Ginger Geek podcast is one in which I attempt to use uh, pop culture and geek culture as a way of better understanding the human condition. So a lot of it tends to dive into things like psychology Um, specifically, I have several episodes that deal with the concept of Jungian psychology as explored through, uh, movies like 
uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi, uh, video games like Alan Wake, um, the concepts of the Joker and Harley Quinn and the toxicity of their relationship and things like that. So it's it's trying to be smart while also talking about stuff that, you know, uh, is very trending on Twitter. Well, I definitely think uh, if you guys out there enjoyed this episode, you'll definitely enjoy checking that out because it really, you know, that sounds pretty awesome. And Matt, I really, you know, appreciate you coming on and, you know, I don't want to say making me rewatch Brick because I wanted to, but just you know, ha- having me choose Brick at this juncture and being like, huh, I'm very happy that I saw this. So It's fine, Brian. You can tell everyone that I twisted your arm. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Absolutely, man. Just want to say thank you so much to Matt. I thought he brought such insight to this movie. Um, we both like Brick. I know some people don't because I've been talking with some friends and like, eh, I got some issues with it. But overall, like, most people really, really, really like this film. So I did. Obviously, Matt did. And I really, really want to have Matt on again because, again, insightful guy, awesome guy. Check out his podcast. Oh, and don't forget, check out my other podcast on the Cage Club Podcast Network. That's P.S. I Love Hoffman. Kyle Reintreid, the foodie films man himself, is my co-host, of course, and we're on our P.S. I Still Love Hoffman series, which we're re-examining the films of Philip Zimmer Hoffman in a commentary version. So you definitely want to check that out wherever you get your podcasts or at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Speaking of other Cage Club shows, of course, Every month, because I'm the unofficial co-host of Mike Mansley's show, Third Time's a Charm, the podcast that examines the third film of a movie franchise, I was on the most recent episode with one of our favorite guests, Shawnee Mead, and we were talking about a Harry Potter film. The Prisoner of Azkaban, to be exact. You definitely want to check that out. We had a blast. It was a really fun episode. And I hope today's episode was a fun episode. And I hope you're getting your notepad down, your composition book, because I'm about to tell you, next week's homework assignment, it is a film called Angus. It's something that I've been told only started streaming recently. I've never seen it. I'm really excited to watch it. Here's the trailer. I'm swallowing snot. You know, it doesn't taste that gross. From the producer of Cool Runnings. Go! comes a story about fitting in. She's definitely a babe. Talk to her. Wherever she's popular. Or not. Let me go! Let me go! It's a little joke, okay? Watch my butt. I'm walking it right now. I get the worst pain in my stomach whenever I see her. I think I know what Rick did with your underwear. The underwear is almost as big as the flag. This year's Winter Ball Queen will be Melissa LeFever. And this year's Winter Ball King is Angus Bethune. I can't dance. I can't talk to girls. You're Angus, right? I know you set it up. This is the chance you've wanted your whole life, right? But I can smash Rick Sanford's face in. Got a temper saver for the football field. I'm not going. You get to dance with Melissa LaFever. I'd sell body parts for a chance like that. You don't have to know how to dance to sweep a girl off her feet. Use what you have in here. We're going to turn you from a large, pathetic virgin into a large, pathetic virgin with a new look. This is Wanda. And she is your date? She's yours. 
Is this a bad time? When Angus dances with Melissa, she's never gonna look back. Go for it, Angus. I think it's alright. Let do what I like. That's the way I wanna live. Now I Angus. Girls, what guys who are dangerous? Have tattoos. Play the guitar. Stick with me. I know these things. It's supposed to have a really kick-ass soundtrack. And guess what? We have a really kick-ass guest next week. You know her from Bajiva. You know her from a bunch of the episodes we've done here in High School Slumber Party. And now across the Cage Club Podcast Network, her name is Kate Hudson. She is awesome. Can't wait for you to really check it out next week. Me too. And remember, you could always find us here, wherever you're listening to us. And at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And guys, help High School Slumber Party out. Tell a friend about High School Slumber Party. That's the best way you can get the word out about this podcast. So I'll leave you with today another song off the score of the Brick soundtrack, which I thought was awesome. The soundtrack, by the way, is done by Nathan Johnson. Is he related to Ryan Johnson? I don't think so, but whatever. This musical score is great. Later, dudes.